I'm Jason Mitchell, Head of Responsible Investment Research at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. So here's a special holiday present to you from the team behind A Sustainable Future podcast. For context, I've been after Vaclav Smil for several years now to get him on the podcast. As one of the preeminent thinkers and authors on historical development and transitions, Vaclav has long been a go-to research source for me. I finally managed to interview him at a man group conference this past September, and I can confirm that he is indeed a force of nature. Frankly, that probably comes across best in his prolific body of work rather than a live interview, which at least in my experience is always a bit challenging. Add to the fact that I was almost surreally interviewing a 12-foot image of his disembodied head via Zoom, and you'll get what I mean. But because Vaclav does so few interviews, it's an immense privilege to be able to have this conversation with one of the leading thinkers of the energy transition. And I think his data-driven approach and his sometimes sobering candidness about the challenges we face are obvious in this episode. But I don't see this as pessimism. I read his message as a voice of uncomfortable but necessary truths. With more than 10 books on energy, Vaclav's work is important because he brings a clear-eyed perspective on the implications of the energy transition. We talk about what the energy transition by 2050 realistically means, how energy transitions have evolved historically, and why the analogy of a climate earth shot is fundamentally different from that of a moonshot. Vaclav is Distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Manitoba. Regarded as among the most important thought leaders of our time, he's the author of 45 books and over 500 papers, including the New York Times bestseller, How the World Really Works, and Energy and Civilization. Vaclav has spent his career exploring new ground in the fields of energy, environmental and population change, food production and nutrition, technical innovation, risk assessment, and public policy. He's been named by Foreign Policy as one of the top 100 global thinkers. Welcome, Vaclav. Hello. Excellent. You have the books. The one thing I would say, if you're not familiar with his work, my favorite quote is from Bill Gates. It's actually a tweet that he sent. And he said that he looks forward to Vaclav books like some people look forward to Star Wars movies. So it's sort of a testament to his influence. Vaclav, let's start with some scene setting. There are a number of pervasive topics in your research, two of them specifically. First, you talk about the almost incomprehensible immensity of the primary energy system, the fact that it's still 85% fossil fuel-based. You also talk about the fact that energy transitions are nothing new. You've written about the fact that we've transitioned from wood to coal, from coal to oil, oil to natural gas. What does history teach us about these transitions? And, And I also want to be a little bit more provocative. Are we naive in thinking that we can compress and accelerate this current energy transition, all while cutting carbon emissions 50% by 2030? Some very simple uh, calculations here, so you could judge for yourself. Suppose you know nothing at all about the world energy system or energy consumption. You have never had a single course in engineering. Uh, you don't know any math beyond simple algebra. But uh, just think of these numbers. 
Basically, now people say by 2050, people like the zero and five endings. So 2050, uh, be zero carbon world. So we have 28 years to get a zero carbon. So let's back 28 years back to 1994. In 1994, the global primary energy consumption, all fuels, all primary electricity, was 86% fossil fuel. 1994, 86% fossil. 2022 is 82% fossil. So we've gone down 4% relatively, but in absolute terms, actually, we have massively increased fossil consumption because of the rise of China and rise of India. Really. But relatively speaking, we've gone down 4% in last 28 years. Now, I ask a simple question, how likely it is that we will go down 82% in the next 28 years, right? As simple as that. You can go home, basically, after this statement, right? Because the acceleration needed is dropping 4% down in 28 years to 82% down in 28 years. I just don't know any historical parallel to that. As you noted, I never start telling people how massive the system is. And we could spend the rest of the day reciting the numbers. More than 8 billion. All these us. 10 to 9, 10 to 12. More than 8 billion tons of coal. More than 4 billion tons of crude oil. Um, more than 4 trillion cubic meters of natural gas, and so down the road. When you deal with numbers like that, you cannot just simply say, like, you know, an old cell phone, a new mobile. Well, billions and trillions, necessarily the infrastructure, simply the material behind it, steel, concrete, uh, copper behind it, you just simply cannot say by 2030 or 2035. Uh, let me give you just one example of which we have been largely deprived in past two years, uh, and that's been flying. By 2019, we reached this, listen to this, 8 trillion revenue passenger kilometers, 8 trillion. More than 8 billion people travel. Basically, every person, statistically speaking, traveled uh, on a jetliner. These are massive machines which can get 300, 400, 500 people, and they can fly also for 17 hours, thanks to what? Thanks to fossil fuel, because the Energy density of kerosene, which runs this airplane, is 12,000 watt-hours per kilogram. The best batteries today are 300 watt-hours per kilogram. That's 40 times you know, more in kerosene. So how can you change these massive things rapidly? It's just simply impossible. So a little bit of basic engineering, scientific uh, literacy would go a long way to say that we just cannot do it that rapidly. Just uh, It's easy to say 2035, 2050. But to accomplish that practically, uh, not so easy. Vaclav, there's a temptation to analogize the energy transition to other human things. Oh, yes. So we, we talk about a moonshot, and we also talk about an earth shot in the context of re-architecting the energy system. Why is that comparison problematic, given all the systems? That's another example of missing basic numbers, uh, because we actually have excellent numbers. I've written recently about this uh, comparing it to the big uh, sort of, uh, you know, do or die projects. Uh, one of us course, the developing the nuclear weapon during the Second World War to be Germans. Uh, as it turned out, you know, Germans didn't have to be beaten because their nuclear research was lousy. But in three years, Manhattan Project spent in today's monies something like $25 billion. This is nothing, $25 billion over three years. So it worked out to about 0.2% of GDP in the US at the time. There's nothing. 
Mind you, most of the people didn't even know that there is a Manhattan Project going on. It was so secret when Truman was my president after Roosevelt died. They had to tell the Truman, the vice president, sir, we are working on this thing called nuclear bomb. Right? While energy transition, every person of 8 billion people would be affected by that. Now, the next is the moonshot, right? We didn't have to go to the moon, but it was the prestige and beating the Soviets, right? Uh, we have detailed accounts of the moonshot 12 years between 1960 to 1972. Divided by those trophies, it costs again about 0.2% of America's GDP per year. And it costs about 250 billion in today's dollars. While nobody knows the total cost of energy transition to 2050, 2060, but McKinsey took a stab at it last year, and they came up with something like $275 trillion, right? The global GDP is now about 90 trillion. So, and they came with this estimate to like a trillion dollars. So again, this is orders and orders of magnitude above any so-called moonshot or nuclear shot or whatever. So again, totally incomparable. And it shows you the magnitude. Because if you would think, you know, about investing 275 trillion only into that thing, while we still have a growing population and expectation of economic growth, we would have to be devoting on the order like whatever, 5, 10, 15, 20% of our annual GDP just to that thing alone, just to that thing alone. Mm. There's a propensity to conceptualize transitions as abstract, as linear, as smooth. And as we all know, over the last nine months, the energy transition has been anything but that. And I'd like you to respond to a provocative quote that Dan Jurgen, the economic historian and energy expert, asked. And mind you that he asked this last winter, just after COP26. So this is when we saw price volatility. We saw in the UK more than 25 wholesale energy providers go bankrupt. And he asked, is this energy shock a one-off resulting from a unique conjunction of circumstances? Or is it the first of what will be several crises resulting from straining too hard to bring 2050 carbon reduction goals rapidly forward, potentially prematurely choking off investment in hydrocarbons, thus triggering future shocks? Well, that's already happening. It's been actually the investment into development of oil and gas has been very constrained for the past decade, and especially for the past five years. So we already are getting into a sort of deficit situation. But it's only part of the problem, you know. Even before the Russian invasion, people always forget that we think too much about us. And us, I mean the affluent rich countries. And unfortunately, we don't matter that much anymore. People find, uh, that's another number which everybody should know, EU, let's include even, let's throw the Britain in after that. So EU and Britain is less than 6% of global population. So what does it matter if there's an energy crisis in Europe? What does it matter if Europe is worried about it? China is doing quite well. China is buying record numbers uh, of uh, liquefied natural gas, coal, oil from all the world. So is India. And... Uh, Let's be clear that Africa will develop whatever Africa will need to develop economically, which means a lot more oil and a lot more natural gas. Africa is not into transition to zero carbon unless we would be pay for it. So, and let's be clear also that another out of another billion plus people coming between now and 2050, 90% of them will come in sub-Saharan Africa, right? So again, unless we are willing to invest these trillions of dollars for them to become green, they will do what we have done to develop ourselves, to build our cement factories and our steel and our ammonia for fertilizers. They will just simply use as much fossil fuel as they can really. So in a way, the question is smoothly what we say, what we will do, what other people will do is very different. But you see, other people feel totally unconstrained. As I speak, 
China is under development and has a hundred gigawatts of coal-fired power capacity. Coal is booming in China, coal is booming in India, and coal will be booming in Africa. So again, you know, reality is versus somebody saying something. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, I mean, to what degree does the Ukraine-Russia conflict change the calculus of the energy transition? And, and specifically, you mentioned the EU. Is the EU energy transition plan, which they've rolled out over the last half year, is it a blueprint or is it an irrelevant outlier? It's relevant and irrelevant. It's relevant in the sense that, uh, of course, they will have to postpone whatever they wanted to do because now they have to scramble to get just enough fossil fuel, right? So right now, it's not a question of, although they say, you know, that we will redouble and triple our, you know, goals forever. But right away, they have to ensure that there will be some heating over winter. And heating over winter will not come from more wind turbines, because you cannot build them that fast, you know, and there is whatever. 200 million, 200 million people in Europe will just require some heating. So in a way, it's very relevant. But in a way, it's irrelevant uh, because they simply cannot move as fast as they can. Let me give you just one example, which is really fundamental in all of this. Suppose they will move very rapidly into electricity, which they mean to do. EU now says by 2035, 100% zero carbon electricity. And of course, it will have to come mostly from what? Well, from mostly wind and, um, and solar. But wind is far more important in Europe because large part of Europe is not that solar, not that sunny, really. Northern France, Northern Germany, Britain, whatever. So wind is the number one thing. I've been just engaged recently in uh, writing my latest book about materials in calculations, comparing the material demand of the number one energy converter in the world today in terms of efficiency, and that's a gas turbine. It's a small thing. Basically, you take you take a turbine a jet line from the jet line, the jet engine, and just simply ground it, and you've got yourself a, a great generator of electricity. That turbine needs about uh, six tons, six tons of materials, steel, aluminum, titanium alloys, six tons per megawatt. Wind turbine needs about 200 tons per megawatt installed. And another 200 tons for massive foundations. That gas turbine, you just put it on a on a little concrete pad, and that's it really. That gas, that, that wind turbine, you have to anchor it massively because it's a tower, 100 meter tower plus, and will be subject to all sorts of strains uh, and stresses by the blowing wind. So now you are replacing one form of energy, which requires, uh, let's say, 10 tons of materials per megawatt of electricity by something which requires 400 tons of megawatt per electricity. How do you do that in a hurry? How do you replace all that fossil fuel electricity? And the best thing is to, and moreover, the comparison is not straight because the best uh, wind turbine will be, working about 40% of the time and will be about 40% efficient. But well, the gas turbine can work on command, on demand. Within eight minutes, you can start it up and it's more than 60% efficient. So it's superior, although qualitatively, really. And in terms of materials, you cannot beat it. Really. So again, Philip Ross, the famous American author, he, he was ahead of us. Uh, he anticipated his wokeness and this uh, disconnect from reality. Already in the year 2000, he wrote, you know, there are no criteria there, just opinions. And since that time, it just exploded. There are no criteria. So materials don't matter for wind turbines. We just had everything with wind turbines in 2035. The fact that it costs, you know, 30, 40, 50 times more uh, material than the gas turbine, who cares, right? You know? So uh, let's go always to basic and let's examine some basic numbers. 
I want to talk about your work around growth. You have a book called uh, Growth from Microorganisms to Megacities, and I'm wondering how it informs your thinking around energy and energy consumption. There's sort of a thread around energy use. We talk about energy efficiencies. We talk about technological innovation. We talk about top-down technocratic behavior change as ways to curb growth. On the other side of that, you've got something like the Jevons paradox, historically, where we make these efficiency gains over time, yeah. but they are negated by the fact that absolute consumption use keeps coming up. Are we bound by this dynamic going forward? Jevons is one of the great jewels of British Empire, uh, and probably he will endure forever. Very simple insight, very powerful, and it applies to just about everything you look at, right? And it goes even to fact that I return to what I'm writing now about this thing called dematerialization, that they use less material per dollar of GDP product. That's true. But on the other hand, you know, we have something like 8 billion mobile phones out there. Just think about the rare materials and all that glass and all that plastic for that. The point is this, that in the Western world, and this is most people don't realize it, per capita energy consumption has actually come down in past 20 years. In US, in UK, because UK is so much deindustrialized, most people find, would find it shocking that UK is now consuming less energy per capita than China. And that's a fact as of last two years, really, because nothing is made in Britain. Britain is more deindustrialized than Canada, and we never made anything, right? So while the energy per capita energy consumption has been declining in US, Japan, Europe, it declined to what I call comfortable, but still very high level. So we consume energy at a level which is still four to five times higher than energy consumption in India, and which is 10 to 20 times higher than energy consumption in sub-Saharan Africa. So again, we see this thing here that, that even if we would, we would decline our consumption, cut it down even more than we do, although we are resisting because we may cut it on one end, but increase on the other end. So let's say we'll make our steel making more efficient, we'll make our industrial approach more efficient, but we'll buy more SUVs. An SUV is two tons car instead of my Honda Civic, which is a one ton car. So this Jevons paradox in different ways always traded in that. But again, as I say, the ball is out of our court because it's in the court of the people who consume 10 gigajoules per year, while even Britain consumes 110 and the US consumes 260, right? So uh, there is an almost infinite demand for more energy consumption per capita. And even China at about 110 slightly of Britain, they probably would like to go like Japan, 150. Really. So even China is not done yet with its increased energy consumption. So uh, yes, we, we are far, far from uh, a point where we will say we are done with per capita energy consumption. Still a lot more room to increase it. My question would be around solutions. You've put up a lot of numbers that look extremely daunting, but what can we do in terms of realistic solutions then to, to achieve, like I said, either closer towards net zero or even just get through the winter in a more efficient way? Any thoughts around that, please? Well, we always try to do some things which are like, you know, not impossible, very difficult. Now, in, if, if you are in Europe, everything is hydrogen. They will tell you that everything will be hydrogen by next Monday or 2030. Hydrogen is very difficult to do for many, many reasons, which we don't have time to go into, right? On the other hand, you know, triple glass window is very easy to do. 
Uh, I have yet to meet anybody in Europe with a triple glass window, yet the building will be there for 100 years. If you put a triple glass window, it will save that uh, heat inside and you will have to use less natural gas or electricity or whatever you are using. I mentioned SUEs a while ago. International Energy Agency has an interesting report a couple of years ago showing that all benefits arising from the introduction of electric vehicles up to 2030 will be more than eliminated by our buying of SUVs in past decade and going forward. Really. And we didn't have to drive SUVs until 19, late 1980s. There were no SUVs. Really. So on one hand, we are going for these crazy solutions like whatever, electric aircraft, just try to imagine electric air uh, 380, right? Uh, or, you know, hydrogen everywhere or ammonia power tanker ships, whatever. But on the other hand, we do not have property in the houses. We are driving monster cars and everybody's flying everywhere. Remember, I mentioned the figures, 8 billion revenue passenger kilometers and people fly somewhere, you know, visit something somewhere for a day and fly back. So on one hand, we waste energy very merrily. And on the other hand, you know, we are looking for some miraculous technical solutions. So let's just do something practical bit by bit. I'm an old Latinist, you know, Gutakalatlapid and Nondi said Sepekarendo. That's what we need to do, you know, bit by bit, bit by bit, and that burst down the stone. Not some, you know, magic blow and the stone will disappear. Yeah, I guess I would add on to that because it's incredibly easy to kind of listen to this and, and hear about the immensity of the system and the raw numbers and feel very fatalistic. If rapid decarbonization isn't feasible, what is the next best option? Are we frogs in a pot of boiling water? Is the answer adaptation? Do we bunker down? No, we just simply work on it. Do these, you know, these little drops, little drops. And one of these little drops, I mentioned um, mobile phones several times. We have billions and billions of them. Their average lifespan now is two years. In many countries, even less. What happens to them? Don't even try to guess what percentage gets recycled. It's just absolutely minimal. They're just thrown away. Yet they are such depositories. If you make a little pile of mobile phones, nowhere in the world you can find an ore, mineral ore, which has so much silver, gold, and other special metals as in that part of mobile phones. We just simply throw them away, throw them away by billions. Now we are running into electric vehicles. Every electric vehicle worth 400, 500, 600 kilogram battery pack. What will happen when we will have tens on hundreds of millions of electric vehicles. We need badly to recycle these batteries. We are not recycling them at all. So, you know, we need recycling. We need, for, we need to plan what we'll do with things. Let's just simply, you see this giant in England, you can see these giant blades of these wind turbines. What happened to these blades? Are we recycling them? Or we are digging big trenches and burying them underground because that's so difficult to recycle because they are composite of several materials. Right? So we are generating more waste instead of thinking ahead and minimizing waste and then they minimizing energy. So just simply, it's not one big bowl. It's not hydrogen or wind turbines. It's thousands of little things which, because the system is composed of thousands of little things from cars to ammonia to mobiles to heating your house. So unless we do thousands of little things all the time, at the same time, we will not get anywhere. It's no one big blow, thousands of little things all the time. It's not defeatist at all, just simply very practical. When we think about the, the energy trilemma, it's been a pretty powerful model, particularly recently, right? The fact that policymakers are always try, trying to balance price affordability, energy security, and decarbonization. And I'm wondering, how you think about, particularly in this transition, the role of markets and the role of 
policymakers. In the past, with past transitions, markets have obviously always played a role, and to some degree, energy security. How do you see top-down kind of technocratic policymaking really driving or, or affecting this transition? You know, I just I just um, focused on one thing, which I think is the is the, the worst thing for us, and it's true both about energy and food. Food being, of course, the most uh, important form of energy. Uh, we got used to cheap food prices and cheap energy prices in Western world. In the room are people of certain generation, like myself, who might remember in 1950s, early 1950s, food was rationed in in England, and average family spent 40, 45 percent of his disposable income on food. Now in Europe, it's a little bit more than 10% before this inflation, right? Let's say 13, 14, 15%. In US and Canada, 8 to 9%. And the same for energy. So both for gasoline and electricity and heating and whatever, and on top of it, all food, less than 20% in North America, which is historically just incredible because it used to be like energy and food, which is like 80%. Food alone used to be 50% in traditional societies. Now, it's extremely difficult for politicians to tell people to save energy, to moderate our consumption. We should double the prices or we should triple the prices. But that surely would do the trick, really, because the elasticity is not such that, like this gasoline, so is food. You will not get any reduction when you increase prices by 5% or 10%. You've got to double them at least. Then you will get your elasticity. But that is totally impossible. So I think this is one thing we should have caught in our technical success, our managerial success, made our food, made our energy so bloody cheap that we have difficulty to rationalize it and say, no, we are just giving it away for the sake of the environment, for the sake of future generations. We should pay a lot more for it. Who will say, oh, I'm all for it, you know? So that's, I think, a basic fundamental problem with where we are in this dilemma. I guess my last question, back to the solutions point, is that we've seen an array of different technologies, many high cost, whether it's blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, many still nascent. Uh, new markets, you mentioned ammonium. I mean, those markets outside of agriculture even need to be created. So there's sort of a question mark. How do you think about sort of solving this on a long-term basis and sort of applying, frankly, discount rates on these different types of technologies and their kind of feasibility at mass scale? Well, you see, I think in the first place, again, we must make some basic decisions because we just cannot continue this hodgepodge we have. Uh, let me mention, let's say, cars, because, you know, there's about 1.4 billion vehicles on the planet and there are internal combustion engines. And now we are trying to electrify them, right? There is at least some people dying. So Elon Musk will tell you, Tesla will tell you, everything should be electric vehicle. This is the best way to go. Number one or number two, largest uh, car maker in the world, that's Toyota, depending on how you count it, really, tells you, no, 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 no. The best way is to have fuel cells and hydrogen fuel cars. Right? Elon Musk calls them fuel cars, not fuel cars, because he absolutely hates it. Then you have the people who say, no, there should be direct hydrogen fueling, not hydrogen fuel fuel cell, but direct hydrogen combustion, which is possible. Then you have people who say, well, ammonia, ammonia is not so difficult to make. You can make green ammonia, and you can actually burn ammonia in your car engine and ammonia, right? So which one it will be? Electric cars, uh, fuel cell car, direct hydrogen car, ammonia car? Four different types, four different infrastructures. Really, you know, so we have to settle on something, right? And we know now we are opted for electric cars, but electric cars, you know, again, the materials going into it, you know, graphite, lithium, copper, rare metals, 
And we have around the world about 16 million of them right now. We need 1.4 billion of them, 1.4 billion. And by the time we get there in 2050, it will be like 1.6 or 1.7 billion. And now we have 16 million of them. So again, think about the scaling problem in terms of materials, all that graphite, all that copper, all that binding of these electric motors uh, to do that. Right? So uh, first we have to settle down and then we come, then let's say this will start moving in the direction. And by 2035, I say, oh, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe that hydrogen was a better way to go because actually it's easier to make from uh, whatever green way or whatever. So we are still in a period where we, it's, everything is so unsettled that we cannot even say what the future will look like. It's still emerging, yet we are making this vision as if it has already emerged. Okay, thank you very much, Vaclav. Thank you. Okay, bye bye. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri podcast.